we get into the Lord's Supper together, I want you to kind of meditate on the words of that hymn. I love to go back and, and look at Not Christian on. songs, particularly the old hymns and the stories behind them. Uh, the story of that man's life, I just kind of ran across it a couple of weeks ago there as we I was go. studying for this series. And it just, uh, it moved to me in, in sitting at home in my office as I was studying and, and God led me to share it with you. And clearly that uh, hymn has been around forever. Part of the, for those of you that are uh, my generation, you will, and it's still on television because I watch it every day, the Andy Griffith Show, greatest show that's ever been on television, and Barney Fife, the greatest character that's ever been on TV. Well, that show is on daily. You can watch it. On well, one of the episodes, they're just in the office. Uh, Andy and Barney are in the office, and they're just kind of talking and doing paperwork, files, and, and, and they start humming, and then they start singing. You know what they're singing? That hymn. And they literally are singing about the guilty stains. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. So I want you to hang on to that. We'll talk about why in a, in a few moments. A couple of things I want to mention to you, and then we're going to get into to God's word for today. So you go ahead and turn to the book of Esther. If you don't know where it is, just go to the book of Table of Contents and start there. All right, a couple of things I do want to mention to you. Number one, if you're interested in our, our starting point class, you know more about what is a Christ church, who we are, where we came from, we're in the process of putting that together. We're going to start a brand new class here in a couple of weeks. Mike Clay and Rhett Butler are going to be doing that, who are elders. Uh, you, can, you can sign up on the website, or you can just contact me or one of them, give your, your contact info, and I'll pass it on to them, or they'll have it, uh, let you know what's going to be at 9.30 on Sunday morning, three of the classes will be at this campus, three will be at the Bartlett campus, there'll be people from both campuses together, and uh, something that we want to continually try to do is bring our campuses together, we are one church with two campuses, uh, the help group is the one thing we do where it works, and student ministry is getting there. But we, need, we want to do more and more together as two campuses, one church. So, starting point, if you're interested, uh, you can get signed up for that. And the other thing I do want to mention is the IF gathering for ladies. Do we have any spots left? You're selling them now, right? Huh? Today is the cutoff, and men, you can't come. Which I think is selfish, and we'll, I'll get into that later. That'll be a separate sermon. Tiffany is selfish, that's what we're going to call it. No, I so, ladies, it's this Friday night and this Saturday, most of the day, to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, right here in our fancy auditorium, so you can come. And I really think you would benefit from it. Uh, have some, we've done it once before, and I know some people that are involved in it, and I think a lot of them. So, I think you will benefit from it greatly, but you need to sign up today. So, you can see Tiffany is here, and Lauren is here, I think Wendy may be here, there she is, and... So if you can't find one of the three of them, uh, you're not looking. They're here, or you can find me, or, and, and I'll pass it on, but you need to sign up today if that's something you want to be part of. All right. If you haven't found Esther yet, raise your hand, and somebody will show you where it is. Take your hand out and look at it for just a moment. If you're in the building, if not, just hang with us. Esther. I began this series last week. It was kind of weird. The only people in the building last week, three people came to church last Sunday, me, Steve and Chad Stewart. Steve and I were in the lobby doing the sermon. Chad was on the parking lot clearing the ice and snow off with his tractor. So I'm, I'm watching Chad through the window while I'm trying to uh, teach the message. And it, it's interesting when you do this a lot, 
There are times you think that was the worst, worst sermon that I've ever preached in my life. And that's what I thought last Sunday after I left. And I just, God, again, it, uh, God says you present the word. I'll handle all the rest of it, Randy. I need to learn that. I've only been doing this 38 years. You think sooner or later I would learn that. But I had a number of people just contact me and tell me that uh, it was really interesting and that God used it. So yeah, I think he really led me to do this series on Esther. If you'll notice the top of your handout, the title of the series is What Time Is It? You've heard me talk. <coughs> pardon me. You've heard me talk a lot over the last few years about understanding that God has us as the church. He raises us up in His sovereignty at His moment in time for us. And so the question is, what time is it? As we begin to look at the Book of Esther, and the answer from us, applicably in our lives, when God says, "What time is it?" the answer for us is, "It's our time. It's our time." to be used by God, the providential hand of God working through us for this moment in time to impact our culture for Jesus Christ and for the gospel. That God doesn't do anything by accident. I was reading from Jeremiah this morning in my 930 class and in Jeremiah chapter 1, God makes it clear to Jeremiah, I've got a message for you to take to the nations. The nations means Everybody, because nations means Gentiles. So you're going to take it to the Jews, and it's for everybody, Jeremiah. I've got a message. You're my prophet. I want you to go and share this with everyone. Before you were born, Jeremiah, I set you aside. I sanctified you. I set you aside for me. Before you were even considered, I had a plan for you. And if you understand Jeremiah's life, that's fascinating when you go back to the very beginning. We talked about Jeremiah a few years ago and we did that series on him. He's known as what? Not Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Don't say that. <laughs> For those of you Three Dog Night fans, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Why? 50 years. About the length of time that I've been a Christian. 50 years. Jeremiah faithfully preached God's word, and he had zero positive responses. How many church committees would he make it past? None. Zero positive responses. And he even reaches a point in Jeremiah chapter 20. He reaches a point where he says, I can't do this anymore. I'm being mocked daily. The word of God is being mocked. They're looking at me and laughing at me and they're laughing at you, God. I just can't do it anymore. I will not open my mouth again. And the very next word, what's my favorite word in the Bible? But, the very next word, but, the word of God was like a fire in my bones and I could not stop speaking it. So what we have to understand, and I think that's the genesis in my heart of this series, is the time, what time is it? It's our time. Is it a difficult time? Yes. We live in a hard culture to be a Christian? Absolutely. But we need to understand it's a great time to be a believer, to live out your faith, to share your faith, to be genuine, and we talked about our series before this one about being a genuine church, a non-hypocritical, one that genuinely loves. 
so that non-believers who are looking for hope, who are looking for meaning, who are looking for purpose, will be drawn to the Christ that we serve. So it's a great time to be a believer. It's also our time. God has raised us up. So you'll notice the top of your handout. We're not going to go over all this because we hit it last week, but I just want to set the stage for where we are. Esther 4.14 is the key verse for this series, the theme verse. Who knows, Mordecai says to Esther, we'll get to that next week. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom, Esther, for such a time as this. And God would say to us, you have. I've raised you up for this time. And the theme of this book and the theme of the series is the providential hand of God. And the word providence we talked about last week means God provides. He fulfills his promises. He will provide. Daniel chapter 4 says, in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, he gives it to whomever he will, and he sets over it the lowest of men. That was not Daniel the prophet saying that. That was not a Jew saying that. That was pagan king Nebuchadnezzar after God got his attention. Read about it in Daniel. Daniel's a great book to read. Set the prophecy aside. Just read it. It's an incredible story of God, time, king after king after king, God reminding pagan king after pagan king after pagan king, empire after empire, that your gods don't exist. I am God. And every one of them comes to the same conclusion, these pagan kings. Every one comes to the same conclusion. The God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of the Hebrews is God. He's proven himself to be God. That principle has not changed. Our God, the one we serve, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Father, the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Our God is the great I Am. He's always existed, no beginning, no end. He is the only self-existent entity or thing in the universe. He is. Everything else, he made. And that's who we serve. That's the exciting thing about understanding. Point one on your handout. The period, what was going on in Esther. This is the Persian captivity of the Jews. It's the end of the Babylonian captivity. And Cyrus, king of Persia, was raised up by God to allow the Jews that wanted to, that were in now the Medo-Persian Empire, Babylon, Medo-Persia. They'd been in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And God had told them in Jeremiah that it was going to end in 70 years. God raises up Cyrus and says to them, has Cyrus issued a decree? God does. You could go back to your land, back to Jerusalem. Back to Palestine, which, by the way, had been leveled. There was nothing there. No Jerusalem, no temple. The land was, they had nothing to go back to except enemies like the Samaritans that were going to fight them. 50,000 chose to go back. They're called the remnant. What we're looking at in Esther is the group that did not go back. They stayed in Medo-Persia because they had it good there. And one of the fascinating things about studying Esther, we mentioned this last week, you will not find the name of God in this book one time. Not one time. The only other book in the Bible that that's the case is the Song of Solomon. So Esther is a unique book. No, not one mention of God. And yet what you'll see is that God raises up, raises up, raises up. Here's why. He's going to keep his promise. It began in the Garden of Eden. He said to Satan, the seed 
of the woman will come and crush your head. And then in the Abrahamic covenant, he said to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bring from you a seed by whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then Galatians tells us that seed was Jesus who was the Christ. Historically, Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So when you get here in about 480 B.C., the time of Esther, you've got Jews that have gone back into the land, the remnant. You've got the rest that have stayed in Persia. And God, to keep his word, has to keep them alive. That's what's going on in the book of Esther because as we're going to see in the next few weeks, a man named Naaman decides that he's going to have the entire Jewish population in Persia annihilated, destroyed. And there, looks, there appears to be no hope for them. And God raises up a little Jewish girl named Esther who becomes queen of Persia to save his people because God keeps his word. So that's where they are. You've got... Xerxes is king of Persia. Vashti we dealt with last week. She's now gone. She's been deposed. You've got Haman, Mordecai, and Esther that we're going to get into starting this week. And what you're going to see, as we talked about last week, you never see God, you never see his name mentioned. He's invisible, yet he's invincible. We don't see God. There's many examples of that. we explained to us in scripture where Jesus talks about you can't see the wind, but what can you see? You can see what the wind does. God is invisible. God is a spirit. But he's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's all powerful. He's everywhere. That's who our God is. And that God has grace. He's always been a God of grace and mercy. And that's what we have to share. And then you get to point two on your handout. The glory of Xerxes. This is where we were last week. Xerxes now, again, emperor, king of Persia, and his, his kingdom is mammoth. We talked about how big it was last week. Most powerful man in the world. And he decides he wants to display because he's putting together a campaign to go attack Greece. And so he's, he's going to display his riches. As we read this in chapter 1. He has this incredible six-month banquet in which he's showing how fast he is, how powerful he is, how rich he is, how the great glory of Xerxes. And he decides he'll bring his queen, Vashti, who's beautiful. He decides he'll bring her out wearing nothing but her royal crown and demean her in front of all his drunken friends. And she chooses not to. And so he's cruel. We saw her courage is standing up to him and he makes a decree and she's deposed. She's no longer queen. So now we're at point two. It's where we are this week. The grace, notice the title of this message. You get two pair for those of you that play poker, and I know that's probably none of you. Two pair. Because we've seen two kings. We're seeing two kings and two queens here in this part of Esther. Now we're going to look at the king of kings, the grace of the heavenly king. So in verses 1 through 4, which is where we left off last week, Xerxes has decided now he's going to look for a new queen. And it puts this great plan together where they come in and they spend a year getting ready with all these beauty prep preparations. And the one who pleases him the most will get to be queen instead of Ashtai. 
So now let's look down at the sovereignty of God in the middle of all of this. He's got hundreds in his harem, the sovereignty of God. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 4. At the end of it, it says, the thing pleased the king, and he did so, what we were just talking about. So the context here is you get in to verse 5. In Shushan, the citadel, this is like the, the winter capital of Persia, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jehem, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So here's the immediate context now. Esther has no idea what's going on. She doesn't know anything about the deposal of Ashtai, yet God is about to use her to save his people. I was reading some different uh, preachers on this subject and on this passage of scripture. I'm going to read you a quote from one of them. I do not have his name because it was, it was not given. But I want you to listen closely. When we look on the world scene, it's seldom encouraging. We need not fret. God is still running the show. God is still on the throne. You and I sit here this morning and we have no way of knowing what the future holds. Though we may not see the Lord directly moving in the circumstances of our lives, will you remember that providence is the hand of God in the glove of history? I love that quote. Providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. And right now, in ways you could never dream or imagine, the Lord is working on your behalf to bring to pass opportunities for you to take your stand for him. Are you ready to trust him? End quote. That's our God. It's our time. So here we are. When you get to verse 5, Mordecai has a plan. Let's look at verse 5 and 6. Or 6. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been, ca- who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. In the original Babylonian captivity, which began in 605 B.C., and ended in 586 B.C., which, which began the Babylonian captivity, Mordecai was carried away. Again, a descendant of Kish. You see the, you're going to see the sovereign hand of God through this. He is working in the palace of Xerxes. The sovereignty of God has got him there. He's able to freely move about, so he has some type of official position in the palace of Xerxes. He's from, as a Jew, the aristocratic family of Kish. Again, taken into Babylonian captivity from Jerusalem. Verse 7, Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. Hadassah is her Jewish name. Esther is her Persian name. His uncle's daughter, she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Mordecai, the Jew who has a position in the palace of Xerxes, has Esther basically is his stepdaughter, his cousin, his stepdaughter, and she's a beautiful girl. Verse 10. Excuse me, verse 9. Now, verse 10. Esther had not revealed her people or her family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. All right. He is, as we said, the stepfather, the guardian to Esther. He knows of Xerxes' plans of bringing all these beautiful young virgins that are going to be in his harem and they're going to be brought to him one at a time, spend the night with him. He knows that plan and that, that out of that, Xerxes is going to pick one of these girls to be his queen. Mordecai knows about that 
and he's putting together a plan to get Esther picked as one of those girls. So he maneuvers to get Esther taken as one of the potential queens for Xerxes. And he tells her, not to tell anyone, that she's Jewish. And so for the rest of her time there, Mordecai is checking on her daily. I want to back up for just a moment. We mentioned Mordecai and Esther are part of the group that stayed in Persia. They did not go back to rebuild Jerusalem. They did not go back to rebuild the temple. They did not go back to the land of the Jews. They chose to stay. The message here, in many ways, beyond the the providence of God and the hand of God working to preserve his people, is that Mordecai and Esther were not the most spiritual of people. Mordecai is telling her, don't reveal your identity. We're going to lie about that right now. We're not going to talk about that. Don't reveal it. But also, he is allowing Esther to be taken into this harem, and basically, this was systematic rape by Xerxes, Night after night after night, they found the one that he wanted to be his next queen. He's allowing, he's making, he's planning to get Esther as part of that. So let's see what happens. So back to verse 9. We see the plan of Mordecai. I want you to see the favor of Esther. Verse 9. The young woman Esther pleased him. She obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Go back to verse 8. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard by bringing all the young virgins in, and when many young women were gathered at Shusha in the citadel or the palace, under the custody of Haggai, that or excuse me, Hegai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the women. Basically, this guy, Hegai, is the custodian of the harem. And Esther pleases him. Notice the quotes in verse 9. She pleased him. She obtained his favor. He readily gave beauty preparations to Esther above what she would have been allowed. Seven choice maidservants were provided for Esther, and she was given the best place in the harem. In other words, she pleased he guy. So he put it up there. All right, verse 12. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes after she had completed 12 months' preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned. Six months with oil of myrrh. Six months with, six months with perfume and preparations for beautifying women. Six months they beautified them. Verse 13, thus prepared, each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shehazagai, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her by name. So now the lottery and the competition is ongoing, and Esther is part of this, probably 400 or so women. Verse 15, the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihai, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king. She requested nothing but what he guy, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor <clears throat> in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the seventh month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So she does exactly what her sponsor 
he, uh, he wants her chosen. She takes his advice, does exactly what he tells her to do. She's got his favor. She gets the favor of all and ultimately the favor of God. She had favor in the sight of everyone. So, again, picture. I want you to see what's going on. Verse 17, now the result. Xerxes, the king, loved Esther more than all the other women. She obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all virgins. So now you see it again, favor, he guy, the people, God, Xerxes, all the rest of the lady, virgins, she obtains favor. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all its officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and he gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. So she, the result is, obviously, she obtains the favor of Xerxes as well, and she's made queen. Again, not the most spiritual people in the world, but God is working, even using a pagan king, again, like he did Cyrus, king of Persia, we mentioned earlier, through Nebuchadnezzar, pagan after pagan after pagan, God reminded him who was God, and here he's using a pagan king to promote Esther be the queen of Persia. Now, verse 19, look at the next scene. Xerxes' life is going to be saved by Mordecai, verse 19. When the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. He, again, had some type of official. Esther had not revealed her, had not revealed her family and her people that she was Jewish, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Tirish, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. So two of these guys are going to try to assassinate Xerxes. So the matter became known to Mordecai. He told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both the potential assassins were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Esther keeps her identity, her Jewish identity, secret. Mordecai doesn't want them to know that, that doesn't want anyone to know that they're Jewish because he fears retaliation by the pagans against the Jews. We'll see more about that in next week's message. So Mordecai learns of this plot to assassinate Xerxes by two of his eunuchs, uh, private protectors. They're going to assassinate him. And by the way, it was very common in Persia for this type of thing to go on. As a matter of fact, Xerxes was ultimately assassinated in his bedroom in 465 B.C. But this time Mordecai tells Esther. Esther tells Xerxes. By extension now, Mordecai has saved the life of the king. And she gives Mordecai credit. So We'll see later that he gets no reward for this, but he does get credit here. So again, message. What time is it? What time is it? It's time for us to understand. We don't, God doesn't expect us to understand everything that goes on around us. What does he expect us to do first and foremost? The theme of the entire Bible is what? Trust me. The righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk, trust me, that's the theme of all scripture, believe me, trust my word, believe me, 
rest in my favor, in my grace, as my children, trust me, trust in my providence, I will provide for you. There's example after example after example of that in scripture. Think for a moment about Joseph. Joseph, godly man, only wanted to do what God wanted him to do. What did his own brothers do to Joseph? Sold him into slavery and told their father what? Brought him a coat with blood on it and said he'd been killed. Just sold him. They wanted to kill him. One of them had a little pang of conscience. They didn't do it. So they sold him. In the moment, did that look good? If you were Joseph, a godly man, did that look good? Could you be confused and say, why, Lord? Of course. So he ends up in Egypt. Ends up where? In prison. Does what's right in prison. And yet, he just sits there. Kind of like, God, did you forget about me? What about me? He's just there. He does what's right. Continues to honor God. And ultimately, he becomes what? Second most powerful man in the world. Next to Pharaoh of Egypt. And God, in his providence, there's a famine in the land. And everybody who wants food has to go to whom to get it? Joseph. And so his brothers, who had sold him into slavery years before, out of jealousy, they have to go to their brother now, Pharaoh's number two guy, to get food. And they suddenly realize that the number two guy, Pharaoh, was whom? Uh-oh, that's Joseph. And the one thought that goes through their minds is what? Human nature would be, if you were Joseph, what would human nature say? You sold me into slavery, you are going to pay. You're going to die. That's what they thought. What does Joseph do? Grace of God. See it all over the, the Bible. The grace of God. What does Joseph do? That great verse from Genesis chapter 50. He hugs them, loves them, and says to them what? You all know the verse. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I'm not mad. I'm not bitter. I'm not going to get you. I'm going to give you food because God put me in a position where I can do that because God meant it for good. As we talked about last week, when you, as you read the book of Esther, it's simply a story and a picture that behind it, however bad it may be in the moment, Romans 8.28 is true. God works good. He's always working good for his own. In this case, God is working good to preserve the nation of Israel. In your life as a believer, God is working good even though in the moment you don't see it. You may not even know how. But in the moment, what, however bad it may be, God says, I'm always working good to those who love me, to those on behalf of those who love me, or those who are called according to my purpose. And that does not mean that your life is always going to be smooth. And for people who preach that, it's just not biblical. I guarantee you, I can, I can look out here and see 
I know in my own life, in my sweet wife's life, over the last, just the last year, the difficulties that some of you have gone through just this past 12 months, and yet you love Jesus. That didn't change. We live in a sin-cursed world, and life at times is going to be very difficult. But God says, it's your time. Use it to glorify me. It will not always be the way you want it to be. As a matter of fact, what did Paul tell Timothy? If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what's going to happen to you? You will be persecuted. Jesus told his followers, the world will hate you. Why? Because it hated me first. If you want to follow me, they're going to hate you. Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself first. Then take up your cross daily. Then you can follow me. If you live in the culture of the day in which Jesus spoke those words, when I say to you, when he said to you, take up your cross and follow me, what did that mean under the Roman Empire? Take up your cross, we're going to march to a mountain, and they're going to crucify you. You're going to be tortured to death. Let's go, boys. You know what the Bible says happened at that point? Many followed him no more. I bet. You want me to do what? And we need to understand that life is going to be difficult. But it's our time. It's our time. What time is it? I want to share a story with you. It's the reason I kind of quit early with the message because I want to do this before we go into communion in just a moment. Because it, it, it's a story of the guy who wrote the hymn we sang earlier. His name is William Cooper. And it's spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. But it's pronounced Cooper. If you've got a hymn, anyway, we haven't kept a couple of our piano at home and Mary will sit down and play and I go to him and read them because I can't do anything else. So, but I love to listen to her play the piano and sing. So I had her, had her the other day before I talked to Peter. I said, would you sing this, this hymn for me? And she just sits down at the piano and starts playing it and singing it. And it was the one I remembered. I wanted to make sure I had the right one. And we sang it earlier. And I want to quote a few of the lyrics again. You've got them there in front of you. That's the reason I wanted you to hang on to it. And then I'm going to tell you the story of this man's life. And then we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. So pull it out and look at it. And mine may be done a little differently, but you've got it there in front of you. The, the guy who wrote this hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. God with us. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may, there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. The thief on the cross. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing thy power to save. 
William Cooper, again, as we're looking at Esther and thinking about, you're seeing the hand of God. He's now put her in position to save his people. We'll see more about that next week. But I want to tell you about William Cooper. He was one of the national poets for England in the late 1700s. In 1763, and he wrote uh, what's called the Only Hymn. He collaborated on the Only Hymn with a guy named John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote many hymns. I want to tell you a little bit about his life. In 1763, William Cooper tried to poison himself, and his fingers just wouldn't work. Couldn't do it. He tried to drown himself in the River Thames. His driver pulled him out, so he did not drown. He tried to hang himself three times, and the garter that he was using to try to hang himself broke every time. And he wrote these words, quote, Conviction of sin took place, especially of that just committed. The meanness of it, as well as its atrocity, were exhibited to me in colors so inconceivably strong that I despised myself with a contempt not to be imagined or expressed. This sense of it secured, from me, me, secured me from the repetition of a crime which I could not, which I could not now reflect on without abhorrence, a sense of God's wrath and a deep despair of escaping it, instantly succeeded, end quote. What you'll see if you go back and you, and you study this man, read about his life, is that he constantly, for the rest of his life, he struggled with the wrath of God. He never felt like he was worthy, and he was just terrified of the wrath of God. And he wrote magnificent hymns like we just read. Everything he read condemned him. He couldn't sleep. When he did, it brought terrifying dreams. When he awoke, he, quote, reeled and staggered like a drunken man. So in late 1763, after all we just talked about that happened, he was committed to an insane asylum called St. Albans. And he met a 58-year-old man named Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, who took care of the patients at this asylum. He was a poet, but most of all, by God's wonderful design, Cotton was also an evangelical believer, a lover of God and the gospel. Remember, Cowper was a poet. This guy's a poet, but he was also a believer. He loved, excuse me, Cooper. He loved Cooper, and he held out hope to him repeatedly in spite of his assistance that he was damned and beyond hope. Cotton kept telling you, there is hope, sharing the gospel with him. Cooper said, there's no hope for me. I'm beyond hope. Have you ever talked to anybody or felt like you've done so much God couldn't forgive you? That's William Cooper. Cotton loved him, held out hope to him. Six months into his stay, Cooper found a Bible lying on a bench in the garden. It says, not by accident. How do you think the Bible got on the bench next to him? Cotton put it there. Now, here's a quote from Cooper. Having found a Bible on the bench in the garden, I opened it to the 11th of St. John, John chapter 11, where Lazarus is raised from the dead. And I saw so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that I almost shed tears upon the relation, little thinking that it was an exact type of the mercy which Jesus was on the point of extending towards myself. I sighed and said, Oh, that I had not rejected so good a redeemer 
that I had not forfeited all his favors. Thus was my heart softened, though not yet enlightened. So he read that. That's what he felt, end quote. So increasingly he felt he was doomed forever. There was no hope for him. Then he had another revelation, and he opened his Bible and he, to Romans 3.25, which says about Jesus, whom God has set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the, through the forbearance of God. Now, Cooper's quote after reading Romans 3.25, quote, Immediately I received the strength to believe it, and full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement. He had made my pardon sealed in his blood and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed, and I received the gospel. Whatever my friend Maiden had said to me long before revived in all its clearness with demonstration of spirit and power. Unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up, look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder, end quote. Went through all that he went through. God brought him to an insane asylum. And he got saved there and he left there and he went to a church and he met a man named John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. And Newton was his pastor confidant for, for years. Now here's the point. He tried to kill himself repeatedly, tried to hang himself several ways. God, it's not your time. It's not your time. The book, message of the book of Esther is, I am there even though you don't see me. I'm there. And I'm always working good. For us, it's to trust God. Here's what I'll do. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask Cameron to come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper as the worship team. What they're going to play is that, that hymn again. And as you're getting ready to take the elements, I want you to meditate on those words, remembering the man's life, that God has always got something he's doing. It's our time. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, we thank you again for loving us. We thank you for the person of Jesus Christ. Without him, we have no hope. And even when we think we have no hope, you're extending that hand. So, Lord, even as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper together, with these elements, we would think about the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that makes redemption, forgiveness, and hope possible, no matter who we are. Maybe like William Cooper, we just think, God can't forgive me, I've done too much. Yet Jesus said, I died. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, Lord, we thank you for the, in the time that we live. It's our time to share that God, that gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.